Good morning, church. How's everybody doing? Good. Good to be with you. My name's Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here at the Hallows Church. And um, also, I just want to fully, you know, say welcome to fall. I feel like it turned in like one day. And the reason why I say that and I emphasize that too is because this Sunday is the first Sunday I got to turn on the heat in here. So if it smells kind of weird, I apologize. The other thing I want to apologize for is when we were turning it on, I was just really excited that the furnace worked because we have like a really long history of our furnace not not working very well. So it worked and that was great. But it works really, really well in our cry room that we've opened up for the first time and have not yet experienced with the heat, like really well. So I turned off all the fans and opened up the door. I apologize in advance if it's a little stuffy in there, but hopefully by now it's kind of, it's gotten a little bit better. But welcome to fall. It is here. It is here. If you have your Bibles, would you uh, open them up to Luke chapter 9, where we're going to be putting our attention into verses 57 through 62 this morning. That's Luke chapter 9, verse 57 through 62. And if this is your first time with us, if you've been um, kind of visiting for the last couple of weeks or so, we have a sermon series that we've been doing in the Gospel of Luke. It's been this awesome series where we've gotten to see Jesus through Luke's account, and we've titled this sermon series A Story for Sinners and Sufferers because we get to see all the real kind of raw earthiness of life and just the, and the difference that Jesus makes in all of that. So Luke chapter 9, the whole chapter, while you're turning over there, Luke chapter 9 is a, is a sense this Jesus is defining what discipleship is. I remember one time years and years ago, I used the term discipleship to someone, and they were like, wow, Mark, you're kicking it old school. We haven't used discipleship in a long time, that word, discipleship. And I remember being really confused about that because discipleship is in itself this unique um, explanation that Jesus gives, but something that I thought Christians used all the time, which we should use all the time because it does have a unique definition and a unique meaning and purpose that Jesus defines for us. And in Luke chapter 9, he does that so well, so well for us. But as we're kind of ending the chapter, we're kind of getting into this next phase before Jesus kind of starts making new themes and topics. And in this whole passage in chapter 9, something significant happens in Luke's gospel. It's that Jesus is finished his ministry in Galilee and now has turned his face towards Jerusalem. And that's significant because that turning towards Jerusalem, it, it accounts that Jesus determined that he would go there. And what he means by that is he would go and die on the cross for our sins to then three days later be resurrected and then we get to see what Jesus is, is dying for, for us. But in this time, as Jesus has turned his face towards Jerusalem and he's walking there now, he has some lessons on discipleship that he shares. And this passage, this sermon this, this morning is called Real Discipleship. Because it turns from 
the attention of the disciples that we do know about to now three disciples that we know nothing about. And they're only mentioned once. And it's these three individuals that share some things I think that all of us can identify with, but our shortcomings in themselves. Real discipleship, through what we get to see in this passage this morning, contains three elements that I want to focus on and I'd like to explore. The first is real discipleship has an element of real discomfort. The second is real urgency. And the third is real purpose. But before we dive in, let's just pray in that direction. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you, God, that we get to worship you together. God, we don't take for granted that we get this opportunity. Father, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would open up our eyes and open up our ears to hear and see your word clearer. God, help us understand the scriptures so that we can understand just the power and the majesty of Jesus. God, we love you, and we thank you for all that Christ has done for us. In his name, amen. So has anyone ever heard of spray-on mud? It's kind of a, it's a new discovery of mine. I haven't used it. I just discovered it. Spray on mud. You kind of ask yourself, like, what that, what that could be for. It's this super popular, apparently. It's very popular. Um, and it's used by people with really big trucks that don't want to do, like, the off-roading, but want that authentic look of, like, using their car, like, and off-roading. So instead of going into the mountains... And go in and rummaging through all of the mud, you can just buy a can of spray-on mud and just spray your car and give, get that, that truck that look that it wants. And it's kind of weird. And if, but if anyone here uses spray-on mud, there's no judgment. There's, like, there's no judgment at all. Okay? I didn't see anyone, like, shrink back in their seats, so I think I'm okay. But, but the, the inventor of spray-on mud... He defined really, he explained really what it was for. He said, the, the, the people who buy this, they want an authentic look. The authentic look, right? They don't want to go through all the stuff. But the interesting thing about that is for $15 a can, in the event of spraying on that spray on mud, there is a convincing of oneself and to everybody else that now you have the real thing. Because what is it that they really want? They want the look of the truck, right? They don't want to go through that. But in doing so, they've accomplished what it is that they think it is, that, that they've got it for. And when we think about Christianity, when we think about our faith, there can be a lot of elements to faith that sometimes make a spray-on mud type effect, a spray-on Christianity, imitations that can pass off as the real thing to ourselves and to many people. Good wishes can be mistaken for prayer. Success can be mistaken for spiritual achievement. Bumper stickers can be seen as evangelism. 
calling oneself a disciple and saying that you're walking with Jesus can really mean something different. And what we need is the real thing. We need to understand what real discipleship is. So that leads us to our first element that I want to share with you and draw your attention to verses 57 through 58, where we get to see this first element that Jesus teaches us about real discipleship, which is real discomfort. So let me draw your attention there, verse 57, where it says, as they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So, so we'll just pause there. So we don't know why this person felt compelled to say this, right? It could be that they felt bad that Jesus was just rejected from the Samaritans because the passage is right before that. Jesus is walking with all of these people, all these disciples, and this big crowd is following Jesus, and he sends people, he sends a couple of disciples to go up and tell the Samaritan village that they're all coming so that they can make accommodations for them. For only the Samaritans to come back and say, no way, we don't want you here, don't come, right? Maybe this person felt bad that an entire group of people have just been rejected. So he went, Jesus, I'm with you, okay? I've got your back, right? I'll follow you wherever you go. That's the kind of tone that I kind of pick up on it, but, you know, maybe it's just he felt compelled to share it for whatever reason. But Jesus was quick to respond in a type of counterpoint that speaks to us, which is to say, in this proverb kind of esque type of language, okay, you'll follow me anywhere, but I don't even have a bed to sleep on. Are you willing to give up all of your comforts to follow me? His disciples were about to experience a type of homelessness. They were about to experience rejection. They were about to experience immense discomfort. And some of them eventually will even experience death for Jesus' name. And Jesus is looking at this person and saying, are you willing? Are you really willing? Because this is what it takes. But the thing is, If we take it at that, yes, that's true. However, Jesus did sometimes have a place to lay his head, right? He enjoyed Peter's home. He had friends, Lazarus and and Martha and Mary, and there was a a type of, of sleeping there, so it's not like he was completely without a bed all of the time. So what, what is this kind of pointing to if... Jesus is saying this and calling this out, and yet there will be moments of rest and some comfort and friendship. Jesus is challenging this disciple who doesn't quite know what he's talking about and sharing a principal element every Christian will face. And that is 
If you walk with Jesus, you will sense that the world is not your home. If you walk with Jesus, you will sense that the world is not your home. There will be a dissonance. There will be a discomfort. There will be an unease. And there sometimes will be a rejection. Does that mean that every Christian will, will be in a, a state of, of homelessness? Not necessarily. Does it mean that we will all at one point be rejected or be ostracized for our faith? Possibly. But a committed, faithful heart knows the discomfort of loving difficult people. There is a discomfort that Jesus is is speaking to here. Discomfort of loving difficult people. The discomfort of sacrificial giving, of giving till it hurts. The discomfort of putting others before yourself. Feeling out of step with culture. Occasionally or sometimes regularly being disliked for your values, for your biblical worldview, for being labeled as a Christian. But here's the thing if faith, if your faith hasn't brought discomfort of some kind, and something's wrong, Jesus calls us to momentary discomfort. And I want to be clear to say momentary because it is momentary. It isn't forever. But through the discomfort, we get to experience something beautiful. We get to be given the aid of Jesus himself through the Spirit. We become ministered to. And then through that, Through that ministry and through knowing Jesus and walking with him, through taking the gospel in, thinking it through, and then turning it out, we begin to have a type of nuanced discomfort that we get to see. We get to see a nuanced discomfort in the things that we're living in, but yet the peace that Jesus gives us. Let me give you you an example of like a nuanced discomfort that I'm talking about. And it's the one that like no one likes to acknowledge, but it's very much there. Prayer. Prayer can be difficult. Prayer can be uncomfortable. And we know we're called to do it, yet we often forget why. I found this super honest quote by C.S. Lewis that I wanted to share. He says, prayer is irksome. When it is over, it casts this feeling of relief and holiday over the rest of the day. We are reluctant to begin. We are delighted to finish. While we are at prayer, anything will distract us. Yet, when we, are, we can be completely focused on solving a crossword puzzle. 
And we know we're not alone in this. However, the painful effort which prayer involves is no proof that we are doing something we were not created to do. If we were perfected, prayer would not be a duty, it would be a delight. So now, the, the discomfort is not in prayer itself, it's in the in-between. It's the true and good things that we are being drawn closer to is knowing the reality that we are being drawn closer to Christ. And yet, at the same time, we can feel an irksomeness behind it. The discomfort is now knowing that that feeling is wrong. And I've got to move away from things that I might want to do. That's the real discomfort that I'm talking about. And that is real discipleship. So what do we do with that? We lean into it so Jesus can continue to reform our habits of our hearts. And that leads us to this next, to the second interaction that Jesus has, which real discomfort is the first. Then another person comes up, or actually Jesus calls out this other person. This is 59 through 60, so let me, let me draw your attention to what it means to have real urgency. 59, it says, then he said to another, follow me, Lord. Oh, sorry, let me rephrase that. Then he said to another, follow me, Lord, he said. I got it. First, let me go bury my father. But he told him, let the bury, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. So this is one of those sayings that it, it sounds like Jesus is being kind of mean. Can we all acknowledge that? It sounds kind of mean. It sounds as though a father has just died and Jesus is telling this guy to ignore his family responsibilities and honoring his father and come with him anyway. We have to be careful, though, in passages like this to let the scriptures do the explaining. Sometimes hard passages or passages that seem confusing, when we open up the scriptures a bit more, they give us tons of clarity. They give us tons of explanation and understanding in that. So, this passage, though taking a little bit more time, this is what I want to make sure that we all understand together. In Matthew 15, Jesus is rebuking this group of Pharisees who are trying to catch his disciples breaking Old Testament law. And Jesus, he takes this moment to flip it on them, where he says, it says in, in, verse, in Matthew 15, verse 3, it says, he answered them, why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of, fa of your father or mother must be put to death. But you say, 
Whoever tells his father and mother, whatever benefit you, have, you might have received from me is a gift committed to the temple. He does not honor his father. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. Hypocrites. So what is Jesus saying there? In, as we compare it to this, this passage in Luke. In other words, Jesus is telling those Pharisees, he's rebuking their habit of what they were saying to their parents, which is, I've dedicated all of my money to God, so you can't have any. I can't help you because I'm doing something different. I'm committed to God and his, his plans. Sorry. Jesus is calling that out. Jesus is calling out it's so much in saying that they are breaking God's command to, in order to follow a tradition that they've made up. That's not what it means to honor your father and mother, to ignore them, to neglect them, to do something for the sake of God. So we use that passage to help us understand what's going on here where Jesus is speaking to this disciple. And if we know then that according to Jesus, neglecting your parents is breaking the fifth commandment, then we need to know, get better insight as to what this person was happening. And the purpose of this that we get to see within this person is that when Jesus is talking to him, we often assume that his dad and his father has died. But really, he actually hasn't. So if the, if the guy's father had died, he wouldn't have been there in the first place. So what is really happening here? His father was getting elderly. So he was asking Jesus to delay following him until his father died. At then, it would be then the appropriate time to get up and leave and to follow Jesus. The request revealed that he had no concept of real urgency that discipleship requires. If you are walking with Jesus, life will be filled with a sense of urgency to proclaim and to see the kingdom of God. If I'm taking my faith seriously, then I won't want to delay in seeing God at work. Listen to, Paul, listen to Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, verses 1 through 5, where he, he gives us this, this urgency that we see in, in the faith that God has given Christians, which is, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, According to the ruler of the power of the air and the spirit now working in the disobedient, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, 
because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. And it is that passion, friends, that drives us to understand our salvation. And it drives us to give, to, with a sense of urgency, to want to share that to other people. It drives us to realize if we've been saved by grace through faith, then following Jesus is going to be walking in that same type of urgency that that was shared to me. I want to tell others about it because life now feels shorter. Life feels like it's moving faster. Time feels like it's fleeting a bit more. And that's a good thing. That is what Jesus is calling to when Jesus calls us to cultivate urgency. Because we naturally get lazy. We naturally want others to do harder things. Or we're at least okay with it. We naturally don't prioritize our calling as ambassadors of Christ and get caught up in, de in delays and distractions. It happens all the time, but Jesus is calling us to more, to more, to the real thing. It's like when I'm, when I'm telling my kids that they gotta clean up their rooms and they get into the cleaning, but then when I come in, they're just distracted by, clean, by playing with all of their toys and stuff, right? And it's this reminder where um, I'm constantly telling them with a sense of urgency of cleaning up in a responsible way, right? But they keep on trying to justify with me that playing with their toys and stopping and, and doing this is a part of the cleanup process, right? It's like completing the thing that they needed to do first, and then they can move on. And Tavia has this thing of like building all of these big like mansion type things with these like magnetile stuff. And it's like she gets offended at me when it's time to clean up. And she's like, but can't you see I'm right in the middle of this? But I was like, you didn't touch that for three hours. You're done, <laughs> right? And it's this process that, it, that reminds me as an adult, as a Christian, what I can kind of get, I can struggle to get caught up in, which, yes, I want to stay in the present, but if the present has lost its sense of urgency in proclaiming the kingdom of God, of living out my faith, then something's not in alignment. To say, okay, I'm going to keep doing this thing now, and it's, maybe it's because it's gotten me comfortable, or maybe I just want to, I want to do it now, I want to finish it. When that begins to be an element of rebellion that God is now causing me to say, no, we've got to move here, something's out of alignment. And I believe that it is that God is cultivating within us a new sense of urgency. And that, friends, is a good thing. It is a good thing. Just embrace it. 
Maybe stepping out in faith is what God is calling you to do right now, even though it is scary. Maybe it's trusting him with the future through your actions. And that might be enough of what God is trying to teach you. Real urgency. Friends, we have the words of life. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is constantly interceding for us. The Spirit is constantly ministering to us and drawing us out into a better boldness. So let's live like it and define to Seattle what real urgency is. And that looks different to all of us. It's a different battle. It's a different struggle for each of us. But it's one that each of us can share. And it's one that the church can share together. Jesus finishes with those, with those two people as, as he kind of finishes talking to them. And then for some reason, some other guy comes up and has the idea to approach, to approach Jesus. And so let me draw your attention to this last one where it's in verses 61 through 62, where Jesus clarifies yet again what real discipleship is, which is it has real purpose. It says, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So this guy sounds similar to the last one, but he tried to kind of do, he tried to give some biblical kind of backing to what he was sharing with Jesus. He was trying to kind of lead from the scriptures to tell Jesus that he wanted to do something that Jesus wasn't calling him to do, right? And Jesus counters that with better biblical clarity, and that's what I want to show you too. This guy's referencing a story from Elijah and Elisha where Elisha looks back before he follows Elijah. I hope that we can get the names. I, I really don't want to mix them up, but if I do, forgive me. But... 1 Kings 19, it tells this story where Elijah, he left to go find Elisha, and he chooses to come follow him. And it says in 1 Kings 19 that 12 teams of oxen were in front of him, and he was with, and he was behind in the 12th team. And Elijah walked up to, walked up to Elisha and threw his cloak, his mantle over him. Elisha then left the oxen, ran to follow Elijah, and said, Please, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. Go on back, he replied, for what have I done to you? So he turned back from following him, took the team of oxen, and slaughtered them. And with the oxen's wooden yoke and plow, he cooked the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. 
Then he left, followed Elijah, and served him. So Elisha gets, gets this moment. He gets to say goodbye to his family. And he gets the opportunity to make the proper sacrifices and then kind of move on to the next chapter of his life. So this guy's saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. Just let me go do the things that I want to do first because it's biblical, because Elisha did it, so why can't I? And Jesus has something to tell us in that. Jesus is our clarity. When he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, he's teaching us that real discipleship has real purpose that we must embrace. Looking back at what you've left behind before you started following Jesus means that you won't do well moving forward following Jesus. So what, I mean, what exactly does that mean then? Right, how, how do I know if I've got a habit of looking back? It could be as much as not surrendering a sin that's been carried with you for, for years and for years, that's kind of lingering in your life, but it could also mean, if this was a pendulum, it could also mean kind of glorifying your past your past lifestyle, kind of making it a bit more glorified in your testimony. Have you, ever, have you ever heard someone that kind of like enjoys a little bit too much um, sharing like the bad things that they did in their testimony? Like someone's like, oh man, that was really bad. And they're like, you have no idea. Let me tell you a story, right? I remember there was this, there was this gentleman who was clearly had this good intentions and, and, and everything. But he had this very dramatic conversion experience. And, the experience, and, the, and his testimony was all caught up in all of the details of him getting arrested, breaking, I'm not kidding, breaking the police backdoor glass, jumping out of the police car in handcuffs, moving, hearing the audible voice of Jesus saying like, Something, right? And he gave all of these details that a lot of us were left confused to say, like, where's the testimony again? Because <laughs> there's a lot of illegal that sounded, that <laughs> was kind of in that story. And that's kind of an example that I use of, of the pendulum of looking back, that we have to be careful at what we're doing. It could be lingering in a sin not giving up, not surrendering completely to Jesus, but it could also be glorifying our past a bit more and, and enjoying it a bit more. And that means that we're not quite seeing the lostness that we were in. That's not quite having the right perspective. Jesus calls us to a heavenly purpose. And Jesus 
clarifies that purpose along the way so that as we're walking with Jesus, we get a greater sense of just what God has saved us from. And as we look forward by looking back in the right perspective, we gain confidence in what Jesus is going to do in the future. And we need that. It doesn't mean that we close off our past. They're very much a part of us. They shape our testimony and our life story. Yes. But if we're staying there, if we're constantly looking back, then we may not have the right perspective moving forward. I love how Psalm 39 describes this of looking at the, having the right perspective and something that I think that we should each be, be praying towards, which it says in Psalm 39, verse 3 through 7, my heart grew hot within me. As I mused, a fire burned. This means a, a passion of his life is kind of burning. I spoke with my tongue, Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days so that I will know how short-lived I am. Give me the right perspective. In fact, you have made my days just inches long, and my lifespan is as nothing new to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. Yes, a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. As he says this, friends, he's saying it with the right perspective because it's one who is resting in the steadfast love of God. The psalmist is reflecting on all of this, seeing that his purpose is now caught up in God's grand redemptive story. We don't have to stay in the past. We don't have to stay in the past because God has moved us to walk in the future. We are called to a real purpose. And to walk in our purpose is to set our priorities straight. That's real discipleship. When groups of sinners and sufferers like you and me can walk forward with Jesus, praising him for what he's going to do and thanking him for teaching us along the way, as we have a clear reality of what's happened to us, so what then do we need to be disciples of Jesus? We need tender mercy and sturdy commitment. Tender mercy, sturdy commitment. And thankfully, Jesus gives us both. In your walk with Jesus, being uncomfortable is a good thing. Because Jesus calls you to a momentary discomfort. In your walk with Jesus, feeling a sense of urgency is profitable because Jesus calls you to cultivate urgency. And in your walk with Jesus, 
looking forward strengthens you not to dwell in the past because Jesus has called you to a heavenly purpose. I love John 15, verse 11. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. May our joy be found in the journey of walking with Jesus and embracing our call to real discipleship. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray.